Philip was the older one. He was 22 and Patrick was 20. And very young lives snuffed out 220 years ago, but they're still remembered, yeah. still talked about. Hello and welcome to Stories from a Living Graveyard, a podcast series created by myself, Finn DeWire, and Damien Shields, the host of the Forgotten Irish podcast. Stories from a Living Graveyard is a seven-part series that looks at the history of Preben Cemetery in County Wicklow. In this episode, we journey back to one of the most violent and bloody chapters in the history of this part of Ireland, the 1798 Rebellion. We'll be uncovering remarkable personal connections to these events in Prebent Graveyard. As you will hear, Damien has a deep personal interest in these events. He actually excavated one of the key battlegrounds associated with 1798, and he'll give us fascinating details about the reality of this bloody encounter. This series has been produced in association with the Preben Graveyard Committee and the Heritage Office of Wicklow County Council. Damien and I would like to express our thanks to the Heritage Council and Wicklow County Council for funding this podcast and the ongoing work to reveal the hidden heritage of Preben Graveyard. To start us on the road to 1798, Damien asked noted Wicklow historian Jim Rees about the background of the rebellion. From the Middle Ages, from the 12th century, with the Norman invasion and everything else, and over the, inter over the following centuries, Ireland became subjugated to England and eventually Britain. And there were several rebellions along the way. We can mark Irish history by when was the particular rebellion, and most of them ended in failure, unfortunately. One of them, probably one of the best known, the best researched in the last couple of decades, was the 1798 Rebellion. This was really founded on the Society of United Irishmen that was started in Belfast in 1791 to try and break down religious sectarianism. And they banded together, they didn't care. Their catch cry was Catholic, Protestant and the centre. Your religion didn't matter. What mattered was the commonality of being Irishmen, and that was the United Irishmen. So that was all the way uh, to the 1790s. And then in 1798, there was a rebellion here in the Wexford, South Wicklow area. There was one over west in Mayo, and there was one up in the northeast, uh, around Antrim, down, all that area there. So the one, obviously, because of the locality that really grabbed my attention, was the one that's barked off in Wexford. And it's often called the Wexford Rebellion, which is a misnomer because a lot of it spilled over into Wicklow as well. And nowhere was there as many atrocities on both sides, as many atrocities as in Tinehealy area, uh, Carnew area, Shillelagh, and right across to Arklaw. There's hundreds of different incidents. Actually, what happened, what started off as a rebellion on political principle and philosophy turned into a, basically a civil war where one side was getting their own back for some perceived slight that a neighbour had done maybe t 10 years before. So it really ended up in just butchery. Yeah. And it was a very, very sad time, but very, very dangerous time. Two of the Wicklow men who decided to throw in their lot with the rebels were local brothers Patrick and Philip Lacey. We asked Jim just who these young men would have marched to war with. Very near here is uh, Ballymanus, 
And one of the main landlords out there uh, was Billy Byrne, the Byrne family of Ballymanus. And him and his brother Gareth, despite being landlords, actually sided with the rebels. They were United Irishmen. And Billy Byrne got a core of people from South Wicklow, from Arnclaw right across to Carnew and across this band, to go down and join the rebels in Wexford. But they were always known as the uh, Ballymanus Corps. So they're kind of lost in history. They weren't known as the Wicklow Corps. So even then, Wicklow lost out on its name being put forward as being involved in the 1798 rebellion. Jim next outlined for us the campaign that Patrick and Philip had fought in as they marched through Wexford that summer of 1798 in the company of their Wicklow comrades. The rebellion broke out on 23rd of May 1798 down in the heart of Wexford, a place called Owlert, be 20 miles from here. And uh, it quickly spread throughout Wexford County. And to try to break out from southwest Wexford into Waterford in that way to the town of New Ross down in southwest of the county, and to try to break into Wicklow and up on the way to Dublin through Arclaw, again about 10, 15 miles from here. And the two battles in both New Ross and Arclaw in early June were massive victories for the British. And really, the impetus of the rebellion was broken at that. But they managed to stay on and keep on fighting. The rebels managed to keep on fighting for about another three weeks until their last stand was in the heart of Wexford in Enniscorthy, on the outskirts of Enniscorthy is Vinegar Hill. And they had their last stand at Vinegar Hill. The story of Philip and Patrick Lacey particularly resonated with Damien. He was involved with Wexford County Council's Longest Day Project, which carried out excavations at Vinegar Hill to try and understand the battle. Damien now gives us a sense of what it would have been like for Philip and Patrick Lacey on that fateful day. And one of the things that we were doing on that project was trying to get an insight into not only how the battle was fought, but how individuals were impacted by it. What was it like for people like Philip and Patrick to be facing into what they faced on Vinegar Hill? Just to give a bit of a background to what happened there, as Jim was outlining for us, it was kind of the last stand of the rebels in Wexford at the time. The Crown forces had launched multiple pincer movements. They had different columns marching towards this camp that the United Irishmen had on Vinegar Hill. And there were about twenty to 30,000 men, women and children camped up there uh, on this really dramatic hill that overlooks the town of Enniscorthy. It must have been quite a sight to see all of these people milling around. And that's what Philip and Patrick and all these Wicklow men were seeing. But about ten to 15,000 Crown troops were moving in on that position. And the United Irishmen who were up on that hill and everybody there knew that they were. And because of the reverses that had happened, they knew what was coming. And those Crown forces moved into position on the night of the 20th of June. And they began, if you like, a programme of terror before they launched their attack. So at about 3am, these guys move into position and they start to push back some of the United Irishmen who were in the outer areas of the Vinegar Hill position. And they're doing that in order to get ground to set up their artillery. And they bring six pounders and mortars onto the field there. And these are the types of artillery that can fire a range of different projectiles into this mass of thousands of people. You have round solid iron shot that can bounce around and decapitate people to cut off their legs they can fire a type of round that's often called grape shot 
where, where it's effectively turning a cannon into a giant shotgun that's an anti-personnel artillery piece that, that disintegrates men and women in its path. And these mortars can lob explosive shells through the air in an arc down onto the people who are on the hill. So the terror element of this type of weapon is, is just indescribable. So at about 3 a.m., these men are beginning to set up this, these artillery positions. Everybody knows is what's coming. And at 4 a.m. on the morning of the 21st of June, they start their bombardment. So again, we're thinking about people who are not military people. There are civilians up there. There are people like Patrick and Philip who are being forced to endure the mental trials of this barrage. And very quickly, this artillery starts to, to take massive casualties on the United Irishmen who are in these outer positions. Uh, part of the archaeological works we did actually identified that the, the, the big banks and ditches that still stand on Vinegar Hill were what these men were sh sheltering behind when this artillery started to fire at them. And in one area out towards the base of Vinegar Hill, um, a couple of dozen of these men are wiped away by artillery fire. And so for hours and hours and hours, these people are, are crouching down under this, this terror bombardment. And you can imagine this softening up process when the guns fall silent then in and around 7 a.m. And that's when the Crown forces launched their multi-pronged assault on the main position, moving up towards the hill. And over the next two hours, there's some fairly heavy fighting, some fairly serious fighting that that presumably Patrick and Philip were involved in. And that was one of the real things we wanted to target when we were doing the archaeological survey. And that is what we found. And really, to be, to be quite honest, we couldn't believe the incredible level of material that survived. So in a, in a shallow depression, if you like, moving up towards the top of the hill, when we were doing our survey there, we found lines of bullets that were being dropped almost certainly by advancing government troops as they were advancing in a line up towards the top of the hill. So we have to imagine people running around on the top of the hill, feeling that they didn't have a way out as lines of redcoats are advancing in a very measured way up on top towards them. And the United Irishmen weren't idle. They were launching ferocious counterattacks against these positions. And we have the evidence for that. We have bullets that they fired. And we have areas that seem to suggest that hand-to-hand -hand fighting was occurring because we have elements of things like pistols that were snapped and broken, which normally happens in hand-to-hand -hand combat. We have elements of, of parts of possible bayonets that would have been used in this hand-to-hand -hand combat. And in and around this area near the summit of the hill, we even found evidence that the Crown forces were wheeling their artillery up behind this advancing line. They were unhooking it from the horses and they were firing this grape, this canister into the faces of the United Irishmen at almost point blank range. So it's almost impossible to imagine the type of carnage that, would, that, would, that was engulfing this hill. Despite having endured this barrage for three hours and despite the intensity of the fighting, they do hold on for two hours. Um, and, and a lot of people are killed up there. And those efforts, effectively allow most of the people who are on top of the hill to escape. Because the Crown forces were trying to surround the hill, um, they required all of their different columns to be in position at a specific time, and one of them was late. A general called Needham had not made it there on time. Apparently his forces had been late setting out and then had been delayed 
um, while they dealt with 100 insurgents that they encountered, um, dealing with them, of course, meaning killing them. And so Needham had not closed one of the access routes to the hill, and it allowed, um, after a very brave rearguard action, most of the people, including Philip and Patrick Lacey and presumably the other Wicklow men that they were with to escape from the one area that they could escape. But they left behind them anywhere between 500 and 1,200 casualties on the field and who knows how many civilians lost their lives as well. There was a, a trail of destruction um, and death in the, along the route of where, where everybody um, was trying to escape areas. But Philip and Patrick get away to, to South Wicklow. And that is where a lot of the insurgent army head for. The army splits in two and um, one group does go for Wicklow, uh, looking to continue to fight up there. But that's the background. And it's an incredible thing to think that survived this in the early hours of the 21st of June. And we talk today a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder and, and things like that. And it's something that we tend not to kind of think about too much when we're talking about battles in the medieval period or battles in the 18th century or 1798. But again, just every time I go to Vinegar Hill and think about that artillery screaming in hour after hour after hour as everybody is waiting for this inevitable assault. This is what these guys survived that morning. You know, you, you feel if, if it was a Hollywood film, They've made it. They, they would have had a close shave that night near Preben and got away. But that isn't the way reality works. And in 1798, Philip and Patrick Lacey don't live to see the end of that day. They die back in their home county a number of hours after the end of that engagement. As Damien mentioned, while Philip and Patrick Lacey survived the battle, they did not live long afterwards. Jack Lynch now picks up the story. We, we know there's a 1798 grave there to the Lacey brothers. Yeah. Well, you know the story of the Lacey brothers that uh, on the way back from Vinegar Hill on the 21st of July, on the 21st of June in 1798, they were ambushed at the bridge down below and six, there were six people in the group and they were slaughtered on the spot. So the Lacey brothers are buried over there under the yew tree. Most of the people taking part went back to their homes in Wexford. But this group, amongst other groups, were making their way to the homes in Wicklow. And when they arrived at the bridge... They decided, being the long day, the long day of the year, that they'd, they'd take refuge under the bridge and travel by the light of the evening time. But a, a local, a yeoman from the Fitzwilliam Yeomanry that was known to one of the group, they met him on the road and he said to them, well, you just take shelter under the bridge. But the story is that he then reported the sighting to his captain and they were surrounded and slaughtered. As the rebellion in the southeast collapsed, the region was engulfed in violence as those who had escaped were hunted down. As one of the last refuges for defeated United Irishmen, Wicklow suffered more than most. That summer of 1798 took many more lives around Preben than just Patrick and Philip Lacey. Here's Jim Reese again. We're, what, a mile and a half from Tinnahaley. Uh, the square in Tinnahaley village is much the same as it was in 1798. But apart from the square, the rest of the town was burnt twice, once by the British Army and once by the rebels in the space, a very short space of time. Uh, every church, every crossroads in this area, there was some kind of skirmish and you couldn't not be part of it. An awful lot of people joined the rebels out of political conviction that wanted to break this tie with England. Uh, but an awful lot of people was... If you don't join them, you're going to be left by yourself and the young men are going to get you anyway as a suspected rebel. 
So a lot of people just look at it. If I'm by myself and try and stay apart, I'm dead. I'm going to have my only chance is now to join one side or the other. The presence of the Lacey brothers in Previn graveyard is remarkable enough. But that is far from the only reminder of those tumultuous times in the cemetery. Amazingly, the political views of some of the people in the area at the time may actually be preserved in the work of local 18th century stonemason, Dennis Cullen. Archaeologist Yvonne Whitty takes up the story. And actually who we're looking at now is a fabulous Dennis Cullen headstone here. And it's actually signed, D. Cullen. And if you can see, um, there is... And what he was famous for was carving the crucifixion scene. I mean, the detail, nobody can compete with the level of work. I mean, and these guys, it wasn't like an oil painting where if they made a mistake, they could paint over it or they could rub it out. Yeah. Like, if they made a mistake, you know, there were, stone is a very unforgiving medium, I think, to be working in. But um, you can see Jesus in the centre. And then he's flanked on either side by... Um, what would have been Roman soldiers. You've got, he uses a lot of symbolism in his headstone as well. So you've got the ladder, the chest that the Roman soldiers are playing, the Roman dice, spear, yeah. the spear. Yeah, they have the dice as well. And the dice always add up to nine. And then also you've got the chessboard as well on either side. And what's also interesting is that um, the, the, the baddies in the crucifixion scene are yeomen that would have been around in 1798. And maybe is he making a political statement as well? Yeah. I don't know. Even this wasn't the end of Previn's connections to the late 18th century. In a fantastic example of what discoveries can lie in wait when local communities undertake archaeological projects like that in Previn, it seems the team may have discovered yet another of the unfortunate Wicklow United Irishmen who died beside the Lacey's at the bridge in 1798. We go back to Jack to fill us in. But in the, in the search of the graves, we found another born man that died aged 19 on the 21st of June 1798 and we are assuming now that he was part of the party that was killed at the time but he's in a family in a born family grave with a mother and father and it looks like grandmother but he was 19 and he was and he died on the 21st of June 1798 that was the same date that the Lacey's uh, were, were killed. Before their efforts in Preben graveyard the local community had known of two brothers who had died as a result of the 1798 rebellion. In a lasting testament to their efforts there, by the time they'd finished, they'd added not only another story, but another name to Preben's record of sorrow in 1798. That's it for this episode, folks. In part five, Out Tomorrow, our journey in Preben Cemetery takes us to the mid-19th century and one of the most tragic stories from the graveyard. Until then, Sloan.